Before we read, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, you are awesome. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. And thank you for the Holy Spirit, our Helper. We just ask this morning that you would um, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Give uh, Pastor Adam clarity of thought and uh, boldness as he preaches your word. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and the stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever, and Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever, and gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever, a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. Who gives, he who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We left off our Exodus series last week with Moses up in Midian, Exodus chapter 2. He's far from home, he's alienated from pretty much everybody, and all the Israelites were still stuck in slavery. But then you have this famous story of the burning bush. I'd like to start this morning at verse 23 of chapter 2. There's just a few sentences here at the end of chapter 2 But there's a lot to learn about God here, and so let's read them. Verse 23 to 25 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw saw the people of Israel, and God knew. 
Well, that little paragraph tells us a bunch of things about God. There's an emphasis there. So if, if this was a classroom setting, imagine uh, what you would write down if your assignment was to tell me the emphasis of these verses. And you can figure out the emphasis fairly easily because the Bible repeats itself. There's a bunch of synonyms in here in order to emphasize something. Four important verbs that begin in verse 24. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. So there's an obvious emphasis here on God's awareness of his people. So they were in a really rough spot. And he was aware of their rough spot and he cared about them. So there's an important question now to ask as we've read these verses. And we often do this with the scripture as we read a few verses and we say, well, what does this mean to me, to us as a people, as an individual, as a family? What is there meaning in this text that means something to me? Or is this just something that happened 4,000 years ago or whatever, and it doesn't have a lot of relevance to my Sunday here? So we need to be careful with our applications. There's a tempting way to apply this. So this would be a tempting application. The Israelites cried out to God and he responded. If I cry out to God, he will respond. Let's call that the, uh, the photocopy interpretation of Scripture. The photocopy interpretation is uh, here was a situation and -and so-and-so did such-and-such and and here's what happened. And so if I'm in a similar situation and I do something similar, then I can expect similar results. Now, the problem with the photocopy interpretation of the Bible is that it reduces every Bible story into an allegory about me. So in this one, the allegory would be Israel was enslaved. So what is the Egyptian slavery of your life? And God will set you free from that. The photocopy interpretation guts the actual story by making it just an allegory about my all-important life. And so all the focus of the passage is on me. We do this all the way through the Bible. You've heard this Uh, A lot of times, like let's say with the story of David and Goliath, right? So David goes out into the field and he's the youngest one and his brothers are there and Goliath had been coming day after day after day. The Philistine warrior saying, eh, it's going to be mano y mano. Who wants to fight me? And whoever wins their, their army will be victorious. And so look, just trust God like David did and you can slay the Goliath in your life. So that's the photocopy interpretation where we reduce the story to an allegory about me. Now, instead of the photocopy interpretation, as we go through the book of Exodus and as you read any story in the Bible, there's a couple of very important questions to ask. And I'm going to put it in just one sentence so you could maybe do one question here. And I encourage you to write this down. When you're reading a story of the Bible, here's the most important thing to ask. What do we learn about God from this story? And therefore, how should I act in God's presence? So what does this story tell me about God? And what do I learn from this story about how to conduct myself in the presence of God in light of what I've learned about him? Now, the photocopy interpretation reduces it to an allegory about me, but the Bible is about God and how to act around God. The Bible is extraordinarily God-centered. Have you noticed that? The Bible is extraordinarily God-centered. 
The Bible is about God and how to act around God. So for David and Goliath, God had promised to protect his people if they obeyed him. And David believed God, which gave him confidence that a baby could go out there and defeat Goliath. So he tries to put on Saul's armor and, you know, Saul was a coward. Saul should have been the one out there. Saul should have believed uh, the stuff about God that David did. Uh, but he didn't. And so, you know, we're learning from that story that God defeats his enemies. God is faithful to his promises to protect his people from enemies. And so be like David, which means to be obedient and to be confident in God. So let's go back here to Exodus, these last few verses of chapter two. What do we learn about God and how to act toward God from these verses? Let's read it again. Verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now, what does this say about God? Those verses tell us that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. What else does this passage tell us about God? If we were to summarize, put all of those verbs together that are repeated so we know it's an emphasis, and so how do we summarize it? And we learn here that God is loving and God is personal. Thomas Jefferson was wrong about God. This deistic God, this divine watchmaker that set up a bunch of natural laws and sort of got things going with, uh, with, with space-time and so on and then left. But this passage shows us that God is intimately involved with his people. He heard their growing. He knew. He cared. He saw. He is about to liberate them from tyranny and indignity, not because he was obligated, but because he loved them. And because he is faithful to his promises. Now, are there any implications for prayer that we can get out of this in light of what we've learned about God? How do we act toward God? Okay, so we've learned that he is a promise-making, promise-keeping God, that he loves his people. He's intimately involved with his creation, not the divine watchmaker that sets things in motion and then takes off. So is there something we can learn about this? Specifically, we're watching these Israelites groan toward God. They cry out toward God. It's not even really a prayer, really. It's more of a uh, type of a thing toward God. What can we learn about how to do that in God's presence? And first of all, I think it's interesting that it's not just praying, but it's groaning. It's Godward groaning. <laughs> they were miserable, right? They were miserable. And so these aren't just bedtime prayers. This isn't a passage that's going to teach us how to pray before a meal. Or There's nothing formulaic here. They're, it's not even terribly dignified here. It's the, these are groans. So why was God roused by these particular Godward groans? And I would like to propose two reasons that seem to leap out of the text here. Two reasons that God was roused by these Godward groans. First of all, these Godward groans were prayed by Abraham's descendants. It's not just anybody groaning, but God paid attention to these particular groans because they were groans that came from the kids of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And that's one reason that God was roused to act. God hears all prayers from all people on all subjects because God is all-knowing. But God is roused here, we are told, because he remembered an old promise to Abraham. And these are Abraham's kids. Now, does that disqualify you and me then? Because, you know, I'm not a racial Jewish person. And so if I, go, if I groan Godward, might God be roused to act on my behalf? Am I disqualified? Well, thankfully, Romans chapter 9 says, It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And also, Paul again in Galatians chapter 3, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So no, we're not heirs according to DNA. We're not heirs according to race. We are heirs according to promise. Now, it's true that God loves the world, but he has a special love for his people. And if you have repented for your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, then you are also one of Abraham's kids. And this makes a difference when we groan because we don't have to wonder if we're on good terms with God. We've got enough problems, right? In the midst of a problem, one of the worst is if you have to worry about being on good terms. And so, look, the Bible explains very clearly how to be on good terms with God. He loves you if you repent for your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. If you do those things, then you are a child of God. You are a descendant of Abraham by promise. And therefore, what the Bible says over and over again is that he has a personal, intimate relationship with that particular family. And you've been grafted in. You're part of that family. And he loves you. So in the midst of the crud, you don't need to worry about that additional aspect of whether or not God is paying attention or whether or not God cares or whether what does he think about me and all of that kind of thing. He does love us. He does want to be with us simply because we are his children. And so we are groaning Godward on his lap, in his ear. He knows, he sees, he hears. Another reason that God was roused by these particular Godward groans is because they were connected to covenant promises. They were connected to covenant promises. Their groans were directly related to stuff that God had promised to do something about. <laughs> Again, Gen Genesis 46, I read this a couple of weeks ago, but Genesis 46, Jacob was worried about going down to Egypt because he knew that the land he was walking on was supposed to be uh, theirs, right? The family was promised this land uh, by his grandpa Abraham, and so he's a little worried about it. And in Genesis 46, and God spoke to Israel, the other name of Jacob, in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Last words of the book of Genesis came out of Joseph's mouth, and he said something similar, and it's so cool. I mean, watch what happens here, because Joseph is about to die. These are his last words, and the last words of the book of Genesis. And so he makes all of Abraham's descendants gather together and say something out loud together. So listen to what, like if you could get everybody together, your family and your loved ones and your closest friends, and you say, repeat after me, what would it be? And here's what Joseph does. 
So this is Genesis 50. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Boom, end of the book. What's going to happen next? Well, it's interesting, it's interesting that his last words and the last words of Genesis and that great promise to Jacob all relate to this same thing. God is going to bring us up out of here. Well, now it's been 400 years, which is a long time. You think about the age of America, and you think about 400 years, Maybe you get used to reading the Bible and you read about these people 900 years old or whatever and you think, eh, 400 years is a long time. Kings had died. Like whole generations of people had been, had died and their names had been forgotten. So we're talking about a long period here and they are crying and they are groaning because it had been 400 years and the promise hadn't been fulfilled yet. Now God doesn't act every time we groan, Right? Everybody with gray hair in the room says, yes, amen. God does not act. God does not move history every time we groan. Prayer is not a vending machine. Prayer is not a Santa wish list. Prayer has to do with God acting on earth. And so his response is entirely up to him. It's entirely his prerogative. Therefore, it makes sense to be reverent about what we ask God for. We need to be very reverent about what we are asking God for. Now, I am sure that God, like any good father, likes to grant even a whimsical request. You know, I was working last night on my laptop and one of the kids came in the room and asked if they could make cookies. Well, you know, that hadn't been part of my plan, but I thought that was a pretty good idea. Let's make cookies. You make cookies. And that's a great, that's great. It isn't necessary It isn't necessary, but my children asked me for something. It wasn't missional. Nobody came to Christ through this granting of the cookie request. But hey, let's do it. And I, you know, God is a father and I know that he's all knowing and all of that kind of a thing. But I have to believe that there is some aspect to God that does beautiful things, even though somebody might not be converted in the process. He is a God who created laughter. He created rest and he tells us to rest. He communicates in poetry. I mean, that's the kind of God that we have. He doesn't just say, look, I am all-knowing and all-powerful. He does say that, but then he also writes poetry about that. So this is a God that does things that are unnecessary and not necessarily missional. So I'm not saying that all our prayers have to be serious, but I'm saying that all our prayers need to be reverent. And there's a difference there. And if we have a reverential Godward groan, It makes sense to think about what does God want here? Again, God responded to this particular God word groan because it connected with the covenant promises. When we groan God word, when we groan God word, it makes sense. And it seems prudent to think about what does God want on earth? (laughs) What is what might God want in this situation before I figure out what I want to ask for in prayer? So what does God want? What does God want? At the Exodus, God was making a people for himself. His idea was to make a people, pull them out of Egypt and make a people who would worship him that he could dwell right in the midst of. 
So that was his big idea. Here's my idea. I'm going to pull you all out so that you can worship me and I'm going to live right in the middle of you. So we're going to be close and you're going to worship me and I'm going to get glory. It's going to be great. That was God's idea. That's the Exodus in a short, real summary there. God's great idea. And you know, he's still doing that. He's still doing that. Pulling people out so that he can be glorified and worshiped and enjoyed. That's what God wanted then, and that is what he's still after today. He wants to make a people to dwell among us and to be worshiped by us. So when they groaned out these prayers, he responded because that's exactly what he wanted to do. That's what he planned to do. It's what he promised to do, to free them, from, uh, to free them for himself, to be worshiped. So God responded to their Godward groans because they were Abraham's children. He loved them. And these groans reminded him of ancient promises. So here's just a simple idea for our own Godward groans, for our own, any prayer, honestly, but especially those Godward groans. Here's just a simple idea. When you groan to God as a beloved child of God, ask yourself, now, what do I really want here? What do I want to, what am I asking for or even hoping for as I groan Godward? What can God do to free me and others to worship him. If that's what God is doing on earth, what, what might God do in order to free us to worship him more fully? Now that makes a difference, right, in the prayer. It makes a difference in the prayer because that kind of worship might happen regardless of what the situation might be. If God is making a people for himself, a people who glorify him, a people that he lives in the middle of, what can I pray for so that God will act so that he gets more glory, so that he gets more worship from me and from the people that I am with? The young believer spends a lot of time asking God to change situations. The old believer adds a lot of prayer about changing hearts. Let me say that again. The young believer spends a lot of time asking God to change situations. But the old believer Adds. I'm not saying not asking God to change things, but I'm saying adding a lot of prayer about changing hearts. Because the main thing that we're after is what God is after, and that is for God to get glory and to get enjoyment from us as a group. That's what God is after. He's making a people who will glorify him. And that ought to shape our Godward groans. Like I said earlier, I think it's interesting that the Israelites just groaned these prayers. These are not articulate prayers. I read a prayer during the confession. It was from a psalm, and I read that. I like doing that so that it's thoughtful and I'm not just winging it or something like that. But these particular prayers were not very articulate, and they might not have even been very theological. These guys were spent, and all they said was, in God's presence. And God was roused. I just think that's cool. It's important to be reverent in prayer. But we don't always need to be articulate. Some people feel like they need to pray about every single detail of a situation. Have you noticed that? Someone is sick. Pray that the diagnosis will be right. Pray that the doctor will be wise in the surgery. And pray that the recovery will be quick. And pray that the medications won't have the side effects and so on. And, you know, I... I, there's a little bit of a control freak in those kind of prayers, aren't they? That God might miss a detail if we don't cover it. 
Or God might be like, well, you know, you didn't pray about the bill. And so, <laughs> Now, I do think we should be specific in prayer. The opposite of this is, is, you know, God bless this person or whatever. Like, get specific. Like, what are you asking for? Fix the marriage or whatever. Like, get specific. I think we should be specific and bold in our prayer. Move mountain type prayers. Ask for crazy stuff. But the bottom line is that we are finite sinners talking to God. Finite means we're limited, which just means we can't see everything. We don't know everything. Uh, And obviously, we're sinful also. We have this sin nature, so our thoughts and feelings are warped, and we have weird urges, and we have dysfunctions and all kinds of stuff, habits and whatever. So when a finite sinner comes into the presence of God, there needs to be a little bit of a openness to let God do what he wants. Like we're bringing him a situation and saying, fix this type of a thing. Since we are finite sinners, it seems to make sense to me, at least, that our Godward groans can just be kind of simple and leave the details to God. We don't need these OCD prayers with every single little possibility covered or God might not. And, and so here, here you have Romans, Romans chapter eight. L- listen to this. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Thank God that happens, right? So the spirit is inside us and we're praying and the spirit is like, okay, I know he just said this, but here's what he really needs. And here's what I'm asking God the father. Thank God the spirit does that. Leave those details and all of the minutia to God and just groan with reverence, with confidence, with worship, like focus on that. If we're trying to make sure to get the prayer right. I mean, it says we do not know what to pray for as we ought. I mean, the Bible just says that we don't know how to pray basically. So what do we need to concentrate on covering every single detail so that our prayers are omniscient? And no, I think focus on reverence because God is greater than we can imagine Focus on confidence because God loves us more than we can imagine. And focus on worship versus situational change. Focus on worship because his, his plans are better than we can imagine. So what we need to focus on in our prayers and in our Godward groans is reverence and confidence and worship. So these are just a few verses at the end of Exodus 2. And they teach us some good theology, knowledge of God that can shape our Godward groans. See how that's different than the photocopy interpretation? It's different. We learn some cool things about God, and and then we think, well, what are the implications of these attributes of God? Since God is like this, and God wants to be with me, how should I act around God? And we learn three or four verses from the Bible. Let me just go a few verses into chapter 3. I'm going to do most of the burning bush next week because there's just so much here And um, I'm not going to handle all of Exodus like this. You don't need to worry about being in the book of Exodus for the next four years or something like that. Uh, We'll probably end up skipping whole chapters and things like that at some point. But 
at this point, I'm just having so much fun that I'm going to, I'm just going to slow down a little bit. So, <laughs> but oh, so just a few verses into chapter three, and we'll do most of this next week. Okay. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That ended up being the exact same place, Sinai, where God gives them the law in just a, little, a couple of chapters later. Verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see him, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So, you know, you, you can do these in your shepherd groups here this week. What, what do you learn about God and how to act around God from that passage? Okay, you're probably not going to see a burning bush at some point in your life. This is not a passage on how to act if something is burning in the wilderness and you're on a hike. This is a passage about what God is like and how to act around God. So, you know, the, the amazing thing about Exodus, I think, I think I was talking to Lois about this last week. It's an intimidating book to preach because this book has been studied so intensely for thousands of years. And so the commentaries are amazing to go back and see what people have said about this through all these thousands of years. So just, you know, a two-minute summary here of, uh, of all of that wisdom, that fire that doesn't go out shows us about God's power over creation. So we're learning about God's power from this burning bush. And the fire also, just fire itself is bright and it reminds us of God's glory. God is glorious and God is all powerful over his creation because he's the creator. And the fact that it was not consumed shows us God's eternity. And it also shows us God's self-existence. He doesn't need anything in order to exist but he exists outside of and separate from space-time because he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need a nap. He is self-existent. So a lot of really interesting things that God chose this way to represent himself right at the beginning of this great story of the Exodus. This is his first appearance to the people, right, to Moses, and this is what he's seeing. He is seeing a glorious, powerful eternal self-existent God speaking to him out of this bush. Fourth century uh, uh, pastor Gregory of Nyssa said, what Moses saw in the burning bush was nothing less than the transcendent essence and cause of the universe on which everything depends and alone subsists. 1600 year old wisdom there. All right, so what do we learn about God? And therefore, how shall we act toward God? How should we conduct ourselves around God? Watch what Moses does. He takes off his shoes and he hides his face. And God says, whoop, don't come any closer. Because this is holy. This is holy. Don't come any closer. So there's distance there. And the taking off the shoes in that particular culture and in many cultures today represented uh, reverence around somebody who's way more powerful. And so it's that humility 
around that kind of a person. Holiness. Holiness. This is holy ground. So we're learning about what holiness is in the book of Exodus. And we'll learn a lot more about that as we go along and begin to see some of these laws and how they work. Holiness is when something is set apart. It's different. Uh, Philip Ryken said this, In the case of God, holiness means that he is set apart from everything he has made. Holiness is not simply his righteousness, although that's part of it, but also his otherness. It is the distinction between the creator and the creature, the infinite distance between God's deity and our humanity. In Hosea chapter 11, God says, I am God and not man, the holy one in your midst. That's God saying, I am different from you. I am holy. So what are the implications? What do we learn about God and how should we act toward God? And one implication is we ought to interact with God in this way, yeah? In our prayers, in our worship services. This is the God we're talking to. Yeah, God is not our buddy. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's holy. Well, since that's true, it's another implication, and that is that we should be so glad that we have a mediator in the presence of this holy God who will flame broil us if we walk too close to him. (laughs) Be glad that we have a mediator in order to make it possible for us to interact with this glorious, eternal, self-sufficient creator. So Moses stands back and he hides his face. How are we going to interact with God? Earlier this morning, y'all were singing stuff to God. You were talking and saying and singing things to God. And we're going to do it again in a few minutes. We're opening God's word and we're asking his spirit to help us to understand it. How do we interact with God without being flame broiled? Do we need to stand back? Do we need to take off our shoes? No, because of Jesus. Jesus is the mediator who makes it possible for us to boldly approach the throne of God. Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of, ha- than the blood of Abel. So here's the deal. Here's how it works, just real specifically and basically. We are sinners. God loves us, and he loves us more than we can imagine. But we are sinners. And so God's problem, if we can word it that way, is how do I interact with and live in the midst of these sinners? Because my holiness is going to kill them. If I go and live in the midst of them, if I send my Holy Spirit or in the Old Testament, if I put a tent right in the middle of all their tents, they're all going to die. So how's this going to work? So that's God's problem because sin deserves death. And we learned that in the second chapter of the Bible. Sin deserves death. And we cannot stand in God's presence without being burnt by his holiness, his sinlessness, his otherness. But Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago in order to pay the penalty of sin that we all deserved. So that penalty of sin means that our sin is paid for and it doesn't need to be paid for again anymore, which is how we are washed clean from our sins. And so we call that imputed righteousness, where the righteousness of Jesus Christ is given to us. I can walk into the presence of God I can walk into the presence of God the Father, not because I've earned some kind of goodness, because my 
goodness and my philanthropy and my virtue or whatever it may be can never come close to God's holiness. The only way I can go into the presence of a bush-burning God is if I'm holy. So I need somebody else's holiness because I don't have any of my own. And so Jesus gives me his righteousness, grabs me by the hand, and pulls me into the presence of God. So that's what happens during a service like this. We might not think of it mechanically in this way, but this is what happens during a worship service. And it's what happens when you're driving in the car praying to God. The reason that you're able to interact with a holy, bush-burning, glorious creator is because a mediator is making that possible. That mediator paid the penalty of sin so that you will not be burnt by God's glory. And that mediator also gives you his own righteousness so that you can walk into God's presence, be on him and be around him and interact with him and talk to him and so on. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and you... Who, were, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's amazing. So we know the honest truth about our lives, right? I, I, we did a confession earlier this morning and many of us had things that we needed to talk to about. We know that we're not holy, except we are holy because... We have a mediator who gives us his holiness so that we are able to interact with a holy, awesome, righteous, glorious, powerful creator and not be flame broiled. Therefore, therefore, if all these things are true, therefore, we ought to be reverent in the presence of God. He's not our buddy. He's the king of kings. But we also ought to be joyful in God's presence because it's different than it was for Moses. It's different for us than it was for Moses because we have Christ. Christ makes a difference why the title of this whole series is the gospel according to Exodus. Because all of these things set up sort of the ground rails and the rules and the format, uh, the framework, so that we understand how it works when Jesus comes. So when we walk into God's presence, you don't have to take off your shoes. Okay, You don't have to worry about not coming too close or I might get burnt. By his holiness, you don't have to worry about that. Be reverent because this is the God we're interacting with. The prophets talk about how his throne is shooting fire and he's surrounded by myriads of people that are ministering to him. I mean, he's an awesome God. He's an awesome God. And we don't just skip into his presence like, hey, God, what's up? I mean, he's God. He's God. He's a creator and he's awesome. But we can be joyful in his presence instead of terrified. So it's like this joyful fear and this joyful reverence in God's presence because we have a mediator, Jesus Christ, who paid for our sins and gave us his righteousness. You know, this is the prayer that we often pray up in my office before the service. We pray that the service would feel reverent and joyful. That's what we're after in our worship services. We don't want a a flippant, quick, happy service right? Or what we're looking for is a reverent service. We are in the presence of an awesome God. So there ought to be a little bit of knee knocking that goes on in God's presence. So we ask that God would give us awe in in light of his glory and that God would give us joy in light of his grace. So that's what we're after. We don't always execute that well because we're a bunch of human beings and so on, but that's what we want for you and your individual 
life and for our life together as a people that has been made by God for God's glory, that's what we're after is reverence and joy. All right, so uh, this is a a fun book. This will be really fun to just go through this. Hopefully we'll pick up speed at some point, but... But, you know, God is faithful, (laughs) faithful to his promises. God loves us. Why did he answer their groan for help, their Godward groan? He answered their prayer because he remembered the ancient promise to Abraham. That same God is the one that we're interacting with this morning. So these guys, they're about to embark on this long journey with this holy God, and they're about to learn a lot about his love and about his holiness and all of those things. And we're going to watch God create this beautiful, elaborate process to make it possible for him to pitch a tent right in the middle of all of theirs. And all of that is going to set the stage for understanding what it was that Jesus came to do when he was born to the Virgin Mary and lived that life and died on the cross and rose again from the grave. So let's learn from them. Let's learn about what God is like. Let's learn from these people about how to worship him, how to Godward groan, how to trust his love and his promises and how to live with reverence and joy every day of our lives. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, you are glorious. You are awesome beyond our imagination. And I pray that through these weeks and, and months in this series, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Help us to see and understand your glory. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. One of our great problems is that we can't see you and we have this deep need to worship you and a desire even to worship you and yet we can't see you. And so God, I pray that in, in, in special ways, in life-changing ways, God, as individuals and as a gathered group of worshipers, I pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Help us to knee-knock in your presence and help us to be so confident in what you have done in Christ that we can knee knock with joy and with laughter and so Lord I pray we're just about to sing some songs I pray that these would be sung in spirit and in truth from hearts that are reverent toward you and been made joyful by the blood of Jesus Christ we thank you and we praise you and trust you in Jesus name Amen